This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. Today we have Dr. Mona Edmin, a board-certified pediatrician and the host of her own Peds Doc podcast to our show. Dr. Mona is here to talk about a lot of the things that we wrestle with in the first year from a pediatrician's perspective. She works with parents day in and day out on things like sleep worries, fussy babies, colic, poops, what's normal, what's not normal, all of these kinds of things that really throw us for a loop in the first days, weeks, months after baby. So I can't wait for you guys to hear this conversation about how to manage these things and also therefore manage our own anxiety as moms in this interview with Dr. Mona. This episode is brought to you by Huckleberry. Huckleberry is a parenting app with the world's first real-time predictive algorithm for nap times that lets you know when your child will be tired but not overtired. It's sanity-saving, tantrum-reducing, and adapts as your child grows. Head to the App Store and download Huckleberry today. Available on iOS and Android. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Dr. Mona, thank you so much for joining us here today. I know we've been back and forth. I polled my audience actually on Instagram and asked who they would like to see on the podcast. And so many people had suggested that I have you on. And that's kind of what started us down this whole back and forth. So I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. I'm so happy to be here. And I agree. This was something that I've been wanting to do for so long, too. And I'm so grateful that, you know, amidst our schedule and working mom life, we've been able to find a time to do this. So thank you. Yeah, you've been nominated as a fan favorite already, and we haven't even done the interview. It's so exciting. Oh, I love hearing that. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. So one of the things I love to do and open up the podcast is I love to learn a little bit about your journey and how you came to specialize in pediatrics. Because obviously, to be on Instagram, I know the work and the dedication that goes into a a platform like that, all the content that you create and the podcast that you curate, all of these things. So I know that there's a deep passion there. And I'm so curious to understand how that came to be. How did you come to specialize in in working with children? So a lot of it came in my chi- in my own childhood. So I loved my doctor growing up. He wasn't a pediatrician. He was a family medicine doctor. But from the beginning, I had an interest in medicine. My mom was in the healthcare field. Um, she had such a stable job. She loved her job. Dad was more so in engineering and he would be going from job to job. So I would see this healthcare job as something very stable. And my parents growing up always taught me about find, you know, finding a job that has stability. So I was like, okay, healthcare seems like a stable job. And then I met my doctor and he was my doctor until I was about 22 because he was a family med doctor. And he was just so great at calming any of my hypochondriac worries. I was a huge hypochondriac that I would just always think that something was wrong or that I would always go to the doctor. And one day he was like, you're going to stop coming in here because nothing is wrong with you. And <laughs> and I was like, this doctor who, and I, I appreciated that. I was like, I was fine, but I would just be so interested in the human body. And then when the internet came out, you know, I would be searching my symptoms online. And so I was like, I want to go into a field where I can learn the actual science of all the conditions that people can go through. And so I decided on medical school. And because of him and how he impacted my youth, I decided to do pediatrics. I love working downstream. What I mean by that is obviously adults are great, but a lot of the things that we do as adults, the relationship we have with sleep, the way we look at food, the way we look at our body image, 
how we handle stress, a lot of that starts in childhood. And so much of that starts with how we parent our children. So I started realizing, you know, this is where I need to be um, a blank slate, if you will. Children, you know, obviously, this is the most impressionable years that they have to be able to create these habits that serve a lifelong purpose. And so then that took me to being a pediatrician. I have loved it. I've been practicing for now. This is my sixth year outside of residency. And my Instagram and podcast came about because I was just finding that in my office, I was repeating the same things over and over. Same, you know, different families would come in and they would be shocked when I would tell them, oh, you don't have to do it that way. And they're like, well, I read online or I heard this. I'm like, no, no, no. And I would explain it in a way that they really understood that they could just really digest it. And they, one of, one of the moms one time was like, Dr. Amin, do you have this written anywhere? And I, it dawned on me. I was like, I need to start a platform. So I talked to my husband. I was like, look, if I do something like this, I imagine it's going to take a lot of time. Um, and he was like, okay, well, why don't you just do it as a hobby and we'll see. And I started in March of 2019 and it's grown. Um, and I think people relate to it because it's obviously evidence-based, experience-based education, but in mm-hmm. a really easy to digest manner where you could be any educational level and you understand, hey, this makes a lot of sense. It's just a lot of common sense education for the modern parent. So that's kind of what my, um, you know, my goal is, is to really reduce the anxiety, reduce the worry that surrounds being a first time parent, third time parent, fifth time parent, because we all kind of go through it when we have a new baby. Yeah. It's so interesting to me the journey that brings us here and how it shapes you to be the doctor that you are. Like I hear from like a family physician, he's on the front lines of like mental health. He's shaping your worries. He's shaping your, you know, your outlook on life. And it's just, it's such a powerful story. And I think about your role in mental health, mental health with moms right? Like maternal mental health, screening their anxiety, helping manage their worries, which is is like part of what we're going to touch on today. But yeah, those first interactions, even from such a young age, have shaped you on this journey. It's it's so, so cool. Thank you for sharing that story. Yeah. Our goal today is really going to be to reduce the worries that moms have. And I can remember being a first-time mom you get down the Dr. Google search, right? That is not helpful at all. Stresses you out even more. And I don't know about what it's like for where you are in your state, but it's very difficult to get pediatricians in the Toronto area. Like I'm on the outskirts in the suburbs of Toronto and pediatricians only consult for like behavioral or like really specific kind of challenging issues. They don't take on well babies, which makes sense given that other other babies take priorities. It's hard to to get consult with somebody who's really super specialized in this field. So I can understand why your information blows up because a lot of people may not have access to it either. Yeah, and you're you're actually right that a lot of my followers are from Canada, and it's just the way the healthcare model is there that pediatricians, in a way, are special, like almost specialized. Whereas in the state, we are our own specialty, and it's first line. And obviously, I know there's a lot of family med doctors that are great at pediatrics, but for you know, for pediatricians, just to toot our own horns, we we go through way more training with just children, right? So of course, pathology, the development, we know this in day in and day out. We study this and we treat these children. So I I, I agree with you. I think that's why people are like, oh yeah, she knows it because I just we just see it every day. Yeah. And then to add the whole level on top of that, that you're a mom yourself and you truly get it and can empathize. I don't know what it is, but I love that my providers are women who have children. Like that just brings another level of comfort for me. Yeah. I think about my first time experience in in becoming a mom and I being in the field that I am and we work with a lot of behavioral nutritionists. I worked in a like child psychology practice until I launched my own business for the longest time. And we collaborated with a lot of pediatricians in the area. So I happen to have a bit of a foot in the door to have my well babies on a pediatrician's like caseload. And it was something that I just thought was incredibly valuable because I'm not an expert in in their development. And I, I've just felt like I longed for that expertise as a new mom to help me know about some of these topics we're going to unpack today. Like what is normal poop? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what are like rashes that are a concern or not a concern? How do we approach sleep? Like, how do I get my my child to eat these things or not eat these things? Like, these things kind of they kind of sound trivial when we say them out loud. They sound so like if you're not a parent, you would have no idea how much like poop can control your life <laughs> until you have 
like a three-year-old who's refusing to poop for seven days and then it becomes like a major ordeal. So I, yeah, I am so excited to just draw on your expertise today. And I appreciate your platform and how you're helping to coach and educate other moms because it's so, it's so needed. Absolutely. And the, the personal experience really does help. I mean, before having Ryan, I think I was definitely um, able to connect. But then once I had Ryan, totally, totally changed the ball game. I mean, I get it from a personal level now. Yeah, I really feel that even in my own maternal mental health, like I was a therapist for nearly 10 years before having my own kids, or I was in uh, at least in the space and in working in private practice in, in various forms. And then I had my own kids and it changed everything in terms of how I practice and how I saw things and how I could understand the demands on parents differently. And yeah, it just changed so much to have that practical piece. Absolutely. Yeah. So why don't we dive into the health of baby in the fourth trimester? What are some of the things that you commonly get? Where should we start in terms of kind of biggest priority or thing that comes up the most? I think the biggest thing that parents worry about is feeding and waking. So one of the common things that I hear um, and that can cause a lot of anxiety, and I think the goal of this conversation for everyone listening is how can we reduce that worry postpartum, especially in that fourth trimester, right? Because there's so many things you delivered, you read all the books, and then now they hand you this baby and you're at home and you're like, what the heck do I do with this? Um, You know, it's very, it can be very daunting. And even if you read all the books, even if you know everything um, that there is to know, you're going to go home and you're going to be confused. And that is completely natural. So I think that's important to understand first. But one of the biggest things that we talk about is waking. And whether you're choosing to breastfeed a baby or formula feed a baby, every parent does worry about the weight and is my baby gaining enough? When you think about it as for breastfeeding, um, breastfed babies, I find that there's more worry about breastfed babies and their waking because you can't visualize how much is going down, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas if you formula feed a baby um, or pump the milk, you're able to visualize, okay, the baby gets two ounces or the baby got four ounces or whatever that is, right? So totally natural that you're going to be like confused, especially when you feel like your milk is still coming in, you're not feeling heavy. My biggest advice is talking to your child's doctor. So whether it's a family doctor or pediatrician, talking to the doctor at those visits and asking them how the weight is looking, they will guide you and say, you know what, you're going to continue maximizing the breastfeeding. I need you to supplement formula. I don't want you to feel like you need to supplement formula from the get-go. Sometimes it's just a matter of establishing the right latch is what's going to help with production also. And so those two things combined, you're going to find that it can take some time for the baby's feeding to be established. But if you are worried about the baby's weight, one of my biggest advice is definitely talk to your pediatrician or your child's doctor. You might need to do some weight checks with them, meaning in person, you may have to go every few days or every day just to track the weight, just to make sure baby is not losing a substantial amount of weight. But I encourage that if you are breastfeeding, um, because what I find is that when a baby's not getting weight, then the mother sometimes feels, okay, well, it's not working. It's And then they get stressed. And stress does nothing for our breast milk production. So I want parents to know that they have resources. They have lactation consultants. They have their child's doctor who can set them up with any resources so that they can maximize that breastfeeding from the beginning and not feel like, well, I have no option. I have to formula feed now because that provides a lot of stress. Now, if a family chooses to formula feed, I am 100% on board. We formula fed Ryan um, because of just various issues. And if that's your choice, I want you to enjoy that choice too. But there is a lot of guilt that happens when a mother is pro breastfeeding, wants to breastfeed, and then either the child's not gaining weight, their supply is low, or the baby's, um, you know, obviously having any, any issues with latching, and then they need to supplement formula, and then they feel this sense of guilt that's like, well, oh, it didn't work out. You can be a breastfeeding mom, still formula feed, you can do a combination, you can be a loving mother, however you feed your baby. But I think the key here is finding your resources, um, utilizing those resources from the beginning, so that you have, you know, you set yourself up for the best opportunity possible for feeding baby. Yeah. Yeah. And can you unpack a couple of skills or like things that moms can look for to know whether baby is actually getting enough milk? Because this is a really big thing that comes up. And especially I work with a lot of moms that have postpartum anxiety. And so if there is no like tangible, you know, seeing the the formula leave the bottle, there there is this room left for fear and worry. But I know that there are ways 
that we've tracked our babies, breastfed babies on to make sure that they're getting enough. Can you share a couple of those cues and tips? Yeah. So one of the biggest things is wet diapers and stool diapers. So wet diapers, at least three wet diapers in a 24 hour period minimum. I mean, we would expect more than that, like, you know, five to even eight, nine sometimes, but you want at least three wet diapers and stool poop. Initially, we should be seeing um, at least, you know, two to three poopy diapers. Now, as the baby gets older though, meaning once breastfeeding is established um, after the two week mark, three week mark, sometimes we see that pooping start to space out. They don't always poop every day. And again, I know we, we mentioned we're going to be talking about poop because it is a source of anxiety for a lot of moms. I hear yeah. you. The wet diapers and the stool diapers are going to be key here. The other thing is obviously filling out of the cheeks. And I know you're like, well, what does that mean? Will I understand? And it's one of those things that you will look at the baby and you'll say like, huh, their cheeks are starting to get a little more filled out, not necessarily chipmunk chunky, but just a little more filled out. And then the other thing would be obviously the weight. Now, some moms will sometimes buy like a scale at home. I'm not opposed to that, but obviously I want to make sure that it's accurate. It's not causing you any more worry and that you're overly compulsively checking the weight like at multiple times a day. That's my only worry about having these home monitors, home scales, because what happens is you literally will start weighing them four or five times a day. You should only be weighing a baby once a day because weight will fluctuate even day to day, but it'll fluctuate before a poopy diaper after a poopy diaper. So you don't want to get too much into weighing so much at home unless directed by a lactation consultant um, that is helping you interpret those numbers. Right. I think that comes back to like even our own weight. And if we're compulsively checking, then we have to figure out ways to manage our anxiety in a way that is, you know, more sustainable and healthier for us. Because I think, like you said, watching the for the wet diapers, one of the things that um, we really started to learn the cues of with the help of like our midwives and, you know, breast consultants, um, lactation consultants in the hospital was like getting to see that like milk drunky state, like getting to see you can you could tell when baby was full because they were just like so, <laughs> you know, like floppy and milk drunk and out of it. I couldn't have visibly measured how much he had gotten because he was breastfeeding, but I could tell based on his cues that we can also learn that they are being nourished and they are getting getting enough, right? Oh, that is a great one. Yes, absolutely. The milk drunk and the fact that they will take some sleeps, obviously, in between those breastfeeding or feeding sessions. Absolutely. Now, there can be some clustering that happens. Some babies do develop some fussy episodes, but you are right that you should see maybe at least an hour, um, as especially as the breastfeeding becomes established, of being able to fall asleep in between feeds. So that is key. And if you're seeing that I feed my baby and they are just crying right after I, I take them to the breast, crying, crying, crying multiple times every feeding, can't get them to calm down, they may be hungry still. And that's when you will want to talk about, okay, do I want to pump milk? Am I going to do some formula supplementation? And that is completely fine if that's happening so that we can obviously give the best outcome to baby in terms of making sure that they're fed. I remember that like day three or so with my first when my milk came in and I got very engorged. We had the roughest night I've ever had in all of motherhood because I didn't know what engorged boobs meant at that time. And my boobs are just filling up and swollen. Nothing is coming out. Baby is like so hungry, not getting any food. And we were just like up throughout the whole night. And I was fortunate to have like a midwife care at the time and called them in the next morning. And they like told me what to do and compress. And then once milk started flowing, baby slept and calmed right down. But that whole getting through that engorgement um, period was was a rocky, rocky patch for us. Oh, man, I bet. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So from feeding, where do parents go next in terms of questions and worries postpartum? So the other thing is sleep. And I think every parent should understand that the newborn period, meaning, and I talk about newborn as the first three months, in my opinion, you're not going to be in this sort of amazing sleep state, but I don't want you to feel like you'll never sleep again. Okay. It's one of those things because I do think there is a culture that I was told it too, that I, you know, I, I'm a pediatrician and there people would say, well, you better get your sleep now because you won't sleep for a long time. And I was like, well, I mean, there are ways to create sleep habits. Um, and I know these ways pretty well because I talked to my families about it. So I want you to understand that sleep will be hard to come by initially, but with time and every baby's different as to when that sleep will finally establish. But with time, you will get sleep again, okay? Mm -hmm, um, and mm -hmm. it will happen. And it's up to also a parent what they choose. Some parents, you know, later on, they 
they don't want to do any sleep training or they don't want to do, you know, do that, that's fine. But there are ways to help a, teach a baby how to settle, obviously, age appropriately. So when you're talking about the first three months of a baby's life, their sleep cycles are extremely, extremely quick and short, meaning they're going to feed, they're going to sleep, they're going to feed, they're going to sleep, they're not going to be playing much they don't have as much wake time, right? So if you're looking at a newborn, they are sleeping way more than a six-month-old. A six-month-old is sleeping more than a nine-month-old. And so you're going to see that slowly start to transition. My advice is try not to look at what the norms are. And I'll say this also about the amount of feeding, going back to that. What I mean by that is that when you look online or if you talk to even nurses out of the hospital, they'll say, oh, your baby should be drinking X amount or your baby should be sleeping X amount. The problem with that is every baby is truly very different. And I find Mm -hmm. that a lot of mothers come worried because they were like, well, my baby's doing this and the books say that they should be sleeping, you know, 18 hours or 21 hours, but only 17 hours one night or only had two ounces instead of three ounces. Oh my gosh. You can't force your child to eat. Okay. Number one, you can't like, you can't shove something down and they don't take it. With sleep, you also have to understand that the rhythm is going to take time to create itself. And those expectations with numbers drive me crazy because I never looked at them. I never look at them. I don't even report them. And when people are like, well, how much should my baby be sleeping? And da, da, da. I'm like, guys, like it is so different for baby to baby. And we can't say that, oh, it's going to be this because what happens is that when it deviates from that, that's when anxiety goes up because you're like, oh, oh something's not right here. Why am, Why is my baby not sleeping? It could be nothing. And we'll go over in a little bit, you know, when to be concerned, things like that. So with sleep, one of the biggest things that parent, I always want parents to understand again is the fact that it takes a while for them to get those longer periods where they'll sleep longer stretches between feedings. Initially, maybe an hour to three hours in between feedings. One tip that I have um, and is don't try to put your baby on a schedule early on. One of mm-hmm. my best friends had a baby two months before and was like, Mona, why can't I put this baby on a schedule? Why does this baby not understand that nighttime is for sleep and daytime is for being awake? And I'm like, they don't have their circadian rhythm set as early as usually six weeks to two months. So for the first six weeks to two months, if even if you try to put your baby on a schedule, they may fight you. And that is not something I want you to worry about because that is just natural. They don't get it. They don't understand night and day yet, but there are ways to help it. So how you can kind of prime a baby is when feeding is established and when baby's weight is at the birth weight, you will talk to your pediatrician or your child's doctor and they'll say, okay, now you can let the baby sleep if they're sleeping. What that means is initially we're going to say wake the baby up every three hours to feed. This is one of my questions. Like, is that a legitimate thing that needs to happen? Because I remember that happened with my first day. told me every two hours I need to be waking baby to feed. Initially, it's it's important. And that's usually, it can be a week or not even that, right? Okay. Initially, just so that we can see that the feeding is established. Now, if you're breastfeeding, you always, some, some moms, the milk will be in and their breasts will tell them that it's time to wake the baby up because they start to feel heavy. But initially, it's every three hours just so that we can see that baby understands that I'm not just getting amniotic fluid in mommy's belly. I actually have to work for this. Once we see good weight gain, though, and that can happen at the initial visit. I've had babies come in at the five-day visit and they're back at birth weight. Feeding is amazing, awesome. And then I say, look, baby's back at the birth weight. Um, You can now let the baby stretch feedings if they're sleeping. And see, I, with my first, missed that memo. I don't even know how long this, like, setting an alarm to wake baby up every two hours went. Oh, wow. But yeah. <laughs> it was it was longer than, and he did lose more. Like, we had some trouble establishing feeding. He lost, I think it was like 11% body weight, and so they were not happy, and they wanted to get his weight up, which I obviously was committed to doing and all of that. It went on beyond him regaining his birth weight, and I'm like, totally convinced I created the most terrible sleeper of life in my first, right? I'm going to be honest, most, not always, okay? Most issues with sleeping and eating happen with the first because we don't know or we are so too honed in as parents, right? Meaning so hypervigilant, right? Hypervigilant, yeah. And it doesn't allow the space for the baby to kind of do what the baby can do. Yeah. Um, So I always like my my little motto is I want to train mothers to raise a kid like it's their second child (laughs) or third child. (laughs) Seriously, with my second, the nurse came into the room. I had just settled him. I'm like, don't you dare touch him. (laughs) Like, do not wake him up. I just settled him. He's full. He's fine. Don't touch him. Right. Like my first, it's all like, oh my gosh. Okay, sure. Take him. You need to measure him. Like after I had just spent, you know, the whole like hour or two trying to get him to settle. 
it's a very different experience with your second. And I appreciated going through it a second time because I had so much more confidence and so much more, yeah, like just knowledge. I guess I had researched and done so many of those things, had gone through learning the skills about breastfeeding and, and what I was okay with in terms of sleep and all of that. Yeah. And I mean, absolutely. With this whole sleep thing, I mean, I agree that you, it's common misconception. Like I'll have families coming into my office at two months and they saw another provider before me and they're still waking their baby up. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why are we waking the baby up? And they're like, oh, I was told. I think what happens is maybe they are forgot, like they are forgotten to be told that, right? I mean, like you, maybe we all know it, but we didn't tell you. And now how would you have known? Exactly. How would a parent have known? Exactly. So exactly. Once feeding's established, once the weight is back at the birth weight, 100%, Hundred um, percent, unless there's some other medical issue, and your pedi- your pediatrician says no, you are going to be able. And you ask your doctor, like if they don't ask you, you ask them and say, "Hey, can I let my baby sleep now if they're sleeping?" Now, my strategy with this is nighttime. I recommend that, right? Nighttime, I recommend stretching if they're not waking up, and that's really important. I also recommend something called la pause, which is like the French way of parenting, where you take a moment before you respond to them. And I, it's anywhere from 30 seconds to a minute when they wake up in the middle of the night. Obviously, if it's been a while, then they might like four or five hours, they're probably due for a feeding. But sometimes they wake up and they're tossing and turning in between a sleep cycle. And it's not hunger. It's that they're just waking up kind of how we do when we toss and turn and they cry and then they're going to put themselves back down. So we did this with Ryan and it actually, I believe that this is what allowed him to be such a really great sleeper is we did the pause where anytime he cried in the middle of the night, even in the day, we would leave 30 seconds to a minute before we responded to him. And of course we're responding. Of course they're your baby. You're not neglecting them, but you're just allowing just a moment to see, are you really waking up or are you just tossing and turning? As he got older, we noticed, wow, it was, he would put himself back because he wasn't hungry. He didn't need us. He was just going in between sleep cycles. And sometimes they let out a ee and then they go back down. And totally. Especially when they're like in the bassinet beside your bed. Yes. I had all my boys in the same room until like around four or five months. And you're right there to like be on their every little whimper. And it wasn't until our pediatrician was like, no, like yeah. <laughs> just no, you need to give it a minute or two up to five. Yes. Depending, Like if they're wailing, obviously, then you're going to go in and that's a different story. But like, they're just kind of like grunting around and wiggling and whatever, like give it a few minutes. And, and I agree. it's like, as a, as a mom, and especially like from a mental health perspective, as moms who are coming into this new transition, potentially with some anxiety, some worry, some even maybe postpartum depression or baby blues, wanting so badly to do it right, mm-hmm. you know, to really like be like attuned to baby, to really be all the things that they they have these high expectations to be in motherhood, um, we can become hypervigilant and we can be like smothering is not the right word because that sounds very like negative, but like very like overly present or really, really zoned in on. And we don't allow for some of that breathing space that is so important for babies to learn to sleep or even to learn to crawl. And like my first baby was never on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Family was around. He was always held. He was always being like fussed over kind of. Yeah. And then by the time I get to my third baby, it's like, oh, that's not a real cry. Like that's just a, you know, like yes. it's a different protest. It's a protest. Set of tolerance. Like, yeah. Exactly. And I'm going to be very honest. People may disagree but there even from the newborn phase i noticed a difference in when ryan was really crying versus him protesting and trying to play us and i know you're like how can a little baby play us i have video footage of him starting to cry and no tears were coming he was just wailing like crying like eh. and i would start talking to him and i'm like that's not a real cry you're fake crying and he would do this little smirk and i was like yeah. it's so funny and my husband and i noticed that like we actually noticed that from maybe when he was about three, four months, you know, not in the first two months, but we noticed it. And it's so, if you can start to read your kid, I mean, you're going to reduce a lot of that worry because like I said, anyone can tell you, okay, do this and do that. But if you start to just look at your baby and be like, okay, no, I'm going to give it a moment. I, and that is the art of the fourth trimester, trying to understand your baby's cries. You can't have a book tell you that. You can't. It's your baby. You're going to know their needs. You're going to know, is this a cry that they actually are hungry? Is this a cry that they want to be held? Or is this a cry that they just need a little moment? And 
if you can start to get that art and you're like, uh-uh, no, 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 this is not that hunger wailing cry. This is a, I just ate and I just need a little moment to just decompress. Babies also can be fussy and it's nothing you did wrong. Yeah. You didn't mess anything up. You did all the right things. You fed them, you changed them, you rocked them, you held them, and they can still be upset. And it's not you, it's them. And they're trying to get their gas out and they're trying to figure out their new little life. And my first was quite colic. And we found out after the fact that he had a peanut allergy. And I don't know if that played a role in his colic at all. He he was just really colicky. And I remember just being like, this baby just like, I don't even know what else to do with him. And he was harder to, um, well, for one, I was a first time mom. And two, to distinguish his cries, to know because he was just, he cried a lot. Yeah. One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments. Researching doctors, reading reviews, making phone calls to book appointments, it's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com slash MomWell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash MomWell. ZocDoc.com slash MomWell. Mealtime with kids can be stressful, but with Factors Delicious ready-to-eat meals, it can be a lot easier. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. No worrying about ingredients and nutrition, no prep, no mess, and no cooking while wrangling toddlers. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Factor can even be tailored to your schedule. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Take the stress out of meals with Factor. Head to factormeals.com slash momwell50 and use code MOMWELL50 to get 50% off your first box. Want to get smarter about your health but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics, but taking the time to research these is exhausting, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. When we're talking about anxiety and when we're talking about moms regulating their own emotions and anxiety, we often have a low tolerance for our baby fussing and crying because it dysregulates us as mothers. So what happens is baby is crying. That becomes so triggering for us that we feel like it has to stop immediately because it's creating so much anxiety for us. We need to figure it out and make it stop. Yes. Right? Yes. And that in itself, yes, like that, that is a system that works. Like it makes sense for us and taking care of baby and attending to their needs and stuff. 
but there also needs to be a, a, a window or an amount of tolerance that we have for our babies or our child's uncomfortable emotions because we cannot always swoop in and fix it. And like when we're talking newborn, very vulnerable babies, obviously we do. We do everything to protect them. That's not, not what I'm saying. But it's like if they're laying on the mat on the floor trying to hone the skill to crawl and they're fussing about it, yes. that's a good fuss. Yes. That's a building up a, a skill in them fuss. And then once they really start to cry and will, then that's a different type of, you know, needs a different level of attention. So there is this when we're struggling with anxiety and with new moms that I do talk about is like we have to have a tolerance for a certain amount of their discomfort. And it's not discomfort that is going to bring any kind of harm or safety concern. That's not at all what I'm saying. But it's a level of discomfort that allows them enough space to learn how to push out their gas or to learn how to pull up on a or or play with a toy that they're so frustrated with that they can't understand how it works. But they they play it a few times and then they figure it out. And we have to be able to hold back our own anxiety in those moments to allow for those those little skills to develop. And exactly. You you mentioned two good points, the allowing them to pass gas or poop. I can't tell you how many times the parent will try to give all these things for the baby's gas. And I tell them, gas, everyone has poop and everyone has gas. When you look at it this way, that babies, of course, they're not going to like it because it's new to them. Of course, because they've never experienced what that feels like. Same thing goes for teething, by the way. I actually equate teething to gas pains because, of course, a tooth breaking through the gum is not fun for everyone. If we fuss so much about their fuss, they're going to keep fussing. And I can't stress this enough. Like we can say a kid teething is not going to be dangerous to them. A kid passing gas is not going to hurt them. A kid passing poop is not going to hurt them in the long run, right? Obviously we know this. And I get it. We are so honed in on not allowing them to experience a negative feeling. Pain is a negative feeling. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, gas pains are a negative feeling, but that doesn't mean that it's not something they're going to get through. So I use this example and you said it beautifully that when they are passing gas, I want you to give them that moment, give them that one to five minutes, like you mentioned. It's not going to hurt them to figure out how to pass it. Now, if you run to them and you chart to bicycle their legs and rotate them around right away, what you're telling them in time, and I'm, I'm very serious about this, you're telling them that I'm not giving you the opportunity to be a human being and do what I know your body's capable of doing. Now, that being said, if they need the help after a minute, two minutes, three, however time you feel you want to give it, right? Mm -hmm. And I agree with you, five minutes is fine in the newborn phase, because you, if you know your baby and you have seen what they, you know, what makes them kind of be upset. Now, if you feel like they still need you, you are there for them. You are going to be right by them. You're not going anywhere and you can help them. I found that really helped. And also the, what you said about milestones, the common thing I get is my baby doesn't want to do tummy time because they scream bloody murder. Mm -hmm. Of course they are because they're used to being on their back, but that doesn't mean putting them on their belly is a dangerous thing and a harmful thing. Of course, when you put them on there, they're going to cry because they're not used to it. Same thing when you're trying to transition a baby to a crib from a, your mom, mommy's chest. All these things are new behaviors to them that they're going to protest because they're not used to it. But with time and patience and little increments of allowing them more time to fuss, more time to fuss every single time, you're going to allow them that capability and safety of saying, I know you can do this. I know you can sleep in this bassinet. I know you're not used to it. Mommy's right here. Let's give you 30 seconds. Next time, let's give you a minute. Next time, let's give you two minutes before I come pick you up. They're in a safe space. All these things are safe things. You are not depriving them of love, giving them an opportunity to experience something new. And this is what I think there's a misconception of. And I did something called tummy time boot camp with Ryan. And I, I joke about it. But when Ryan was, Ryan didn't love tummy time initially. He hated it. He was such a back sleeper and he loved, I mean, obviously that's what we should do back to sleep. And I would put him on his belly around six weeks and he would protest. I'm talking the shrieks I've never heard. And as we got older, we, I would lay down on the ground with him, kind of like a boot camp instructor. And I would lay down and I would say, Ryan, you got this, you got this. And I literally jokingly would like, you know, hit the ground, you know, like a, if you imagine it, like you're in a boot camp class. And I would say like, you got this, Ryan, you're going to do this. I'm so proud of you. Look at your neck control. You are awesome. And I'm telling you the repetitive nature of what we did. This kid started lifting his head up in tummy time around three months and started crawling and pulling to stand because we were so okay with him fussing. Yeah. And it's the being okay with the tears. And I'm not saying that you are letting your kid 
like you said, in an unsafe position. You said it beautifully that you are allowing your child the capability of experiencing something new that is great for them. Mm -hmm. Tummy time is great. Being in a crib is safe. Learning how to do new skills, this is good for their development. You're not being a bad parent by allowing them a moment. Because imagine if we never allowed our children to fuss, what does that mean? That means we're telling them that you're not allowed to be sad. You're not allowed to struggle. When in fact, the struggle, even in this period, and it's not, it's not detrimental struggle. It's just getting through those hard moments. You're telling them that I'm there for you. I'm not going to abandon you if you need my help, but I'm going to just give you a moment to see what you as a baby, as a human being are capable of doing. Well, it brings me right back to my first experience in new motherhood where it wasn't it wasn't that I thought that he couldn't handle it. It was that I couldn't handle yes. it because I was going through postpartum depression and anxiety and I could not handle him being awake in the night. Yeah. I could not handle his crying or his colic or his whatever, right? And so we swoop in to regulate ourselves. And I had Dr. Becky Kennedy on recently and we were talking about how when we are dysregulated or when, when we're triggered by our child, we become dysregulated and we try to control or shut down the behavior in them in order to regulate ourselves. And that is what is so frequently happening, especially in this baby stage. I hear from a lot of moms who say like, oh, it's so triggering when my baby cries. And it is. It, like, I so remember those feelings. But not every cry now as a mom to three, like not every cry or protest is a pain, distress, crisis call, yeah. right? Like, like as a new mom, I saw every cry as like equally, you know, crisis, like yeah. as equally as urgent as important. And now with my third, it's so funny. And now they have language and it's different when they have language and can communicate. But all three boys will be playing in the playroom and we'll hear like a cry or a fuss. And we're like, that's not a real cry. Yeah. Like they're going to figure it out, you know. And it's different and it comes with some experience. But I want to say for moms who might be listening, who might really, it might become very overwhelming and dysregulating for you when baby is crying and it might really activate your anxiety. There may be more than just new mom adjustment happening in this time yeah. because I did go through postpartum anxiety and depression. I talk about it a lot on the podcast and I spend my time in this space. And if you're becoming very dysregulated and you feel like you're not coping, then speak to somebody about it. Let's talk about building up your tolerance and tuning into baby's cues and identifying those different cries. And those are all skills that can be learned that help you to feel more confident on your motherhood journey. Oh, I can't agree with that more because that is the key here is that there is a balance of understanding that some of this worry is normal, but when it's becoming overwhelming where you can't sleep when they sleep at all, I'm talking like right. you can't even close your eyes and get a single rest because you're so worried about how they're sleeping. You're so worried about, are they gaining weight? You're so worried about the fussing. That is anxiety. That is okay to, to say that. And you said that you had dealt with this. I actually had, I had PTSD from our traumatic birth a little bit. It got better. I was actually doing great until I went back to work at around in, in-person work around like seven months um, in the mm -hmm. pandemic. And I started having postpartum anxiety, or maybe it wasn't postpartum anxiety and just anxiety in general, who knows. But I started having really bad anxiety maybe a month ago. And it was to the point where I said I wasn't myself. I was crying for no reason. Yes. Like you said, the sound of Ryan crying was triggering me to a level that I had never experienced. Like for seven months, I hadn't had it. And now when he cried, um, he was going through some teething, but he was also going through just some eight month like uh, separation anxiety, things like that. I literally would just be in tears hearing him cry. And I was like, this never happened. And you know yourself, like you have to understand that all these tips that we say, it's easy for me to sit here and say, you know, don't fear the fuss. Don't worry. You know, think about the things that you're controlling. But if you feel like it's not working, there are solutions. And I am so grateful that I'm getting my help that I need because it, it really has brought me back my joy in motherhood, you know? Yeah. Those are some major red flags. If you're saying things like, I don't feel like myself. Yeah. This doesn't feel like me. Like who signed me up for this? I don't enjoy, I don't, this is like, I, this is not a gig that I want to do, you know? We all deserve to enjoy motherhood. And if you are not enjoying it, there is something going on. Yes. And we need to seek help and have conversations, whether it's that we need to support and we need to learn to ask for help or whether it's some anxiety and depression going on, like whatever it is, talk to your provider about it because we should at least be having moments of, of joy. Absolutely. And, and another point that I want to highlight here too is that 
It doesn't always look weepy. So sometimes when we get overwhelmed or have anxiety, we get like weepy or get sad or or maybe feel a bit down. Other times we become very ragey. And this is a very commonly looked over symptom in moms and new moms. When we feel overwhelmed and we're extremely irritable and we're like lashing out and being short with partner and resenting partner and being overly critical and maybe even like yelling or losing our cool or becoming so frustrated and angry that we can't get this baby to stop crying. These types of feelings, again, are distress signals, are red flags that, you know, maybe we should talk to somebody about our ability to cope Mm -hmm. and work through these really tough newborn, like new mom situations. Oh, I agree. I and that's exactly what happened to me. I was coming home so I so cranky and I was I was mean and I even told my therapist. I was like I'm mean now and I never used to be like that to my husband and my nanny. Yeah. And it was it was changing the energy in the home and I I I knew it. I'm like I'm not that person. I am a very happy person. I mean, I hate using those but I was. Like I was very I found joy and balancing work-life balance and you know, it was it was taking a toll and I'm just so grateful to have that insight. And if I can tell, you know, everyone listening, it would be, don't be afraid to admit that, you know what, I'm not feeling okay. And if your partner is dismissive, because I get that a lot, like, you know, my partner is saying that it's normal or, you know, that I need to just suck it up because I hear that often in my office and it's heartbreaking to me. I want you to say that I'm telling you that I'm not feeling okay. If they keep pushing you back and saying, well, this is what it is, you deal with it because it's awful when I hear that. I want you to realize that there are other ways to get help. You obviously have your doctor. You obviously, um, there's online resources, obviously therapists, things like this. But I don't want you to feel like you have to do this alone and that no one is going to validate your feelings because it is that stigma of every mother goes through this. So why do I have to complain or what do I have to complain about? Commonly mothers will say, well, I have so much help. You know, I have a nanny and I have grandma here and I have this. And I'm like, you could have all the help in the world and yet you can still deal with postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. And if it's Mm -hmm. removing the joy and ability to bond with your baby in the long run, I need you to get help. And the reason why this is so key is that not just for mommy's mental health, it's just important for baby's health also. The healthiest babies that I see, meaning when I say healthy, developmentally thriving, you know, gaining weight, whatever it is, is a mother who took care of themselves first. Because you can't expect a baby to thrive if the mom is not thriving also. We are connected. I mean, I don't care what anyone says. It is, we are together in this, right? A a healthy mom is going to have a healthy baby emotionally and physically. And that is why I stress the mothers always recognizing their priorities are just as important, if not more important than their babies. Because Mm -hmm. if they're not in it, if they're not feeling it, if they're not emotionally there, if they're not present, and of course, some days you're going to have like times where you're like not really into it. I did too. I was so tired, but then it goes in waves. But if you're finding that it's always that you're just in the place of, I don't like it. I don't love this. I don't find any joy looking at my baby or spending time with my baby. I want you to talk to someone because like we said, this joy, it exists. And for the health of your baby and your mental health, I want you to find that happiness. And the baby is going to be fine, whatever, you know, obviously, whether you formula feed, whether you do sleep training eventually, whether whatever you do, I know the baby will be fine, but I want mommy to be fine too, because we have to have a healthy mom to have a healthy baby. Yeah. And I so appreciate that you are on the front lines seeing moms because they are so underserviced and not tracked with their own, you know, providers often. So they really only maybe see the GP or the pediatrician at these like wellness check-ins and things. And moms don't get screened and don't get tracked accordingly. Just because you wanted to be a mom doesn't mean that you signed yourself up to suffer through postpartum depression or anxiety, right? Like when you decided to become a mom and you set these expectations for yourself, once we get in them and when the climate changes and when things shift and we get new data or like we get new struggles, we don't not treat them because we signed up for this gig, Yeah, you know? And so it's so important for us to take in and evaluate the new information that comes in and the data and how we're feeling, adjust our expectations accordingly. And if you are questioning and you're you're listening right now, you're not really sure how you're feeling and you're not sure if it's normal new motherhood or anxiety or depression or, or what it is, Postpartum Support International is on Instagram 
at Postpartum Support International or postpartum.net. They have lots of free resources. They have lots of information. They have a text line and a call line. So if you have questions about whether what you're experiencing is normal, you can reach out to them. They will answer your questions and they can help you find a maternal mental health specialist in your area. And they service people all over the world. They're an international organization. So it doesn't hurt to send a text message. It doesn't hurt to have a call with somebody to say, hey, like, does this sound, does this sound normal? Is this average? Like, should this be what I'm feeling? And just explore it a little bit differently because you do not have to suffer in silence. And there are treatments that will have you feeling like yourself again, right? Absolutely. So this is like such a valuable conversation. I feel like I have these conversations a lot on Instagram. I don't know that I have a podcast episode that has has dived so intentionally into these areas um, in new motherhood, but it's such a vulnerable time. And any little thing that baby is experiencing can become such a trigger. Like I think about my firstborn because he was colic and he, he now has a peanut allergy. He had severe eczema and like skin issues when he was born. And like that was a thing. I had no idea what a baby's skin routine should look like. We couldn't find creams that work. There were so many things that came up along the way that I was just so earnest to want to do things right for him that anytime something popped up that I felt like I couldn't control or that I didn't know, it was a reminder of how new I was at this and how much I felt like I was failing in the beginning, right? And we are not all pediatrician mothers. And even if we are, like I'm a mental health specialist. I went through postpartum depression and anxiety. That doesn't mean that I am immune. You're a pediatrician who is going through motherhood and is going to have your own struggles in motherhood. And it doesn't mean that you're immune. So if we are professionals trained in these areas and we've struggled, you know, one in five moms struggle, 40% of those moms go undiagnosed and unrecognized and unsupported in their struggles. And it sounds like we're very aligned in our mission that that's just unacceptable. Like moms need to be supported through this process. Oh yeah. And I, I agree with that. Like, it's just this, the undiagnosed, I actually ran a poll on my Instagram about like, do you feel like you suffered from postpartum depression and anxiety and never got help? And like 80% said yes. And I was just shocked. And, And again, this is not like a, like a scientific study. This was just my followers responding on a story, but I, I know this happens because I see it in my office. And the reason why I'm just so grateful that we're talking about this is that it's this normalizing of it's okay to not be okay. And it's okay to say, like you said, that the experiences our babies put us through is triggering. And even though our grand, like I say this, even though our grandma did this with five kids, even though our mothers did this and they went, came through it, it doesn't make it not difficult, right? It's difficult. It's the recognizing that this is hard. And just by saying that, like, you know, me and you talking and you telling me, Erica, that, you know what, this sucks. I'm tired. And I don't know when I'm going to sleep again, but I just want to let you know that it sucks. It, the validation, right? The saying that, you know what, I agree with you, Erica, it's not easy. You're doing amazing. What can I do to help you? It just helps so much in getting through it rather than saying, oh, don't worry. Everyone does it. You'll never sleep again you know, this is what it is, like, good luck having, you know, your your life is, you know, done forever. Those comments serve no purpose in mothering and in promoting the mental health of mothers. And as you said, like, I was not immune to those comments, even as a pediatrician, I would have people who I know are probably dealing with their own issues say, oh, yeah, you're just gonna, you know, your traveling's done, this is done, you're not going to do this again. And me and my husband, we knew we're like, our child is an addition to our family. It doesn't mean that our life stops because of our kid. It means that our life changes to a new, a new chapter that involves a child. It does not mean you don't, Mm -hmm. you don't lose your identity, you don't lose who you were before. Obviously, you have to adapt and create a new identity that now has the child. But saying that, you know, who I was before and who I was later has to be different people. I disagree with that. We are the same woman, you know, whatever, however you define that, that woman, I was a pediatrician before being a mother. I'm still a pediatrician. I still enjoy doing hobbies. Yes. I can't do things as much as I used to, but I still have that identity. Motherhood is not my sole identity. And I think it's important that we remember that because if you think motherhood is your sole identity, 
and your children drive you crazy or that they do something that makes you upset, you're more likely to be upset because your whole identity is wrapped up into one person. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you can diversify your portfolio and say, you know, I'm a mother and I maybe do something else and I'm a wife and I, you know, I'm a, I'm a daughter and I'm good at these things. When things don't go so well in one of those aspects, just say your child is fussy or you're dealing with something, you're going to say, you know what? It's okay. I'm going to handle this just as I handle everything else in my life as a powerhouse, you know? So I think that's the key here also. Yeah. And I like, I think back about with my third was when I went through my most like significant postpartum depression that I have talked about um, previously. And I was sitting in the office of my midwife at the six-week check-in with baby before he was about to be moved to the pediatrician. And I'm sitting there thinking, I, I'm spiraling into postpartum depression. Like, I, I know myself. Like, you know, if she asks me, I will talk about it. Yeah. Right? And as a, as a, as a mental health professional who knows better and knows I should advocate for myself, but whatever. And she didn't ask. And therefore, I didn't say anything. And then it continued on until about a, like a, I had like a breaking point that I talked about in the first episode of this podcast when I was about uh, four months or so postpartum. And I just kind of fell apart and I called my husband home from work and he took me to the doctor and we started this process of recovery. And within a few weeks, I was just feeling like myself again, um, but I, I pushed it off too long. So if you think about a mom who is in your office, let's say I'm a mom who's coming in and I'm anxious to have this conversation. How can I bring it up to you? How can I advocate to myself? What what do I tell you? Um, how do I wave the flag to like flag you down and say like something's not right? Like how how can moms approach it with their providers? I think it's, you know, obviously with a pediatrician or your child's doctor, it may be a little more difficult because your child's doctor can't always treat you per se, you know, but what you can say is, if, you're, if your child's doctor doesn't ask how you're doing, I don't want you to feel like they're a bad doctor. Sometimes we they forget. Like I'm so busy sometimes and I'm seeing the child that I sometimes I try to, but I sometimes forget to ask the mom, how are you doing? And it doesn't mean that we don't care. Of course. But if you are feeling like, you know, that something's not right. And I usually have this sort of sixth sense of saying, I know something's up. The mother usually, it's the mother who usually is coming in with so many concerns you know, back to back concerns or has a flat affect that I'm like, okay, let's get a little more digging into how she's doing. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to say to, you know, to the, to your doctor or the child's doctor, Hey, you know, this is going on. I just feel sometimes that it's a little overwhelming. What is normal? You know, even asking that, like, when is this normal? What I'm feeling? Yeah. That is something that can go a long way, right? Like I'm feeling this, I'm, you know, whenever baby cries, I just, it hits me in my stomach and I just feel like I can't let it go. I can't sleep when baby sleeps. What do you think? Is that something that passed? What should I look out for? Because even just knowing the red flags, right? Because early on in the first couple of weeks, of course, maybe you won't be able to rest completely because you're getting used to, you know, having a baby in your home, like how they're sleeping, da, da, da. But you should start to get more comfortable with your role, right? Um, and that can happen at any point. But if you're one month, two months out and you're not able to sleep and you're constantly checking on baby, I want you to ask, you know, well, you know, I keep checking on the baby and you, I want you to ask the pediatrician. They'll probably ask, why are you checking on the baby? Oh, because I, and I'm going to be honest, some parents are so worried that the baby, something will happen while they're sleeping. And then that's when I use the opportunity of going over safe sleep. And so if you are worried about something, whether it's a fussy baby, safe sleep, how they're sleeping, ask the pediatrician and saying, is there anything I can do to maximize, you know, how this can go? Like, is there anything else I can do to just help the baby? Or is it something that we need to wait out? Because they'll give you the guidance and say, oh yeah, you're doing everything amazing. Baby's sleep in a safe sleep environment. You know, you're doing everything right with the fussiness. You know, sleep is what this is. Because asking those questions can help you come up with solutions. And when you are dealing with anxiety, we sometimes want those solutions, right? We want concrete. Well, why don't we do this? Why don't we, you know, come up with this plan? And it can help a lot of the times in coming up with a plan so that you can help, you know, feel a little bit better about the situation. Yeah. And I think that this is one of the big challenges that moms face is that, well, at least in, in um, Ontario and Toronto where I am, is that moms don't follow with a doctor. Like the GP, if they're with a GP, sometimes that is their GP and the child's GP. So like they kind of serve that dual purpose of care. But it's it's like feel, this feeling of like falling through the cracks a little bit. Who do I talk to? How, who do I have these conversations with? And 
And sometimes advocating for yourself and asserting yourself or putting yourself out there because it's a very vulnerable conversation to have can feel really difficult. But I encourage you to do it. And if you can't, you can text Postpartum Support International and ask them if this is normal. You can call anonymously somewhere to ask and bounce it off of them so that they can say yes or no. And then you work up the courage to go to your GP and say, you know what, this this organization or this therapist or this whoever, whoever told me that I'm struggling with postpartum depression and I should talk to you about it, right? So there are ways to get your needs met. And I know that it's anxiety provoking. I know it's vulnerable to put ourselves out there. But for your comfort level on where you are with asserting yourself and advocating, there is sort of a different venue that you can go or a different way you can go for each sort of comfort level. If you if having the conversation head on at first is uncomfortable, go through Postpartum Support International or book in with your doctor and really just practice that conversation and, and work up the nerve, write a letter, whatever it is that you have to do to prioritize yourself and get the care you need. Um, let's work up the courage to try and do that, right? Absolutely. I agree with you completely. This has been such an interesting and helpful conversation because what I'm taking away from it is like we can really go through, you know, what is normal and outside of normal for all sorts of areas in regards to baby. But when we step back, what it really comes down to is so much to do with our own mental health and our own ability to tolerate the stress and to not be like really reactive and be consumed by worry. And if we have a an approach to ask the questions or to talk to our provider, then I feel like it's all woven together in this theme that we've been unpacking today. Uh, Yeah. And it's this, it's exactly what you said, this sort of understanding that we, it doesn't have to be, it's not going to be always be perfect. And that we're just have the insight into knowing also what's wrong when we need to seek help, the questions like you mentioned that need to be asked. And that's why, you know, pages like yours on Instagram, your podcast, and then obviously um, other educational accounts are so useful because it gives mothers and caregivers these resources that say, you know what, I actually was feeling this way. And sometimes, like I said, just knowing that you're in that same sort of space as someone else, knowing what questions to ask a pediatrician or when to be concerned can really help. Like, that is it for me, like the knowing when to be worried, like truly, like in a medical standpoint, because what I find is that in that postpartum period, the anxiety can come because if your child's not gaining weight, you're worried about, them, right? You're also worried about, are they thriving? And if your child has a fever, if your child gets sick, you're worried. You want your safety of your child is of your utmost importance because you're a parent. And so knowing when to worry, when your child's crying, the number one call I used to get in the middle of the night would be when I was on call is a fussy baby at three in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I go through, you know, the list. I'm like, okay, baby is making wet diapers. Baby doesn't have a fever. I want you to just wait it out. You know, obviously soothing mechanisms that you know, but sometimes when parents know what are the red flags I need to look out for, then they have the, you know, security and that confidence to say, okay, I'm doing everything in my power. We are going to get through the hard days and get to, you know, get to enjoy those good days. Mm-hmm. Like what is the true crisis? What really needs intervention and what do we need to learn to tolerate? Where is that line? Right? Yeah. That's so, it's so good. And it's so helpful because I know in those early motherhood stages, everything can become a worry. Baby is sleeping too long. Oh my gosh. Oh, I mean, yes. Like, do I need to go check in? Oh, baby's not sleeping at all. Oh my gosh. Yes. That's a worry. And, and worries can arise in, like, I swear my brain can invent worries out of thin air, you know? Yes, so it does. <laughs> yep. So knowing what is truly a, I guess, crisis is how I would define it, or like something urgent that needs attention, and what is something that we need to learn to tolerate and sit with a little bit. And uh, and today's been extremely helpful in understanding that and helping us unpack that. So thank you so much for your time today and for, for joining us on this episode. I am so glad to join you. I think, again, this stuff is so important to talk about and put out there and that that bond and connection between mom and baby and caregivers and babies, like, it is it is so important for me to you know have this out on the airwaves here because it can really provide that joy that I know moms can find if they just look for it. And where can people find you online? I know you're hanging out on Instagram. Let's share all your all your details with everybody. Yeah, so I have an Instagram account which is Peds Doc Talk P E D S D O C T A L K. So Peds Doc Talk, and then I have a podcast also geared more towards um, child health and wellness. So I do talk about obviously some maternal things too, giving, given that I'm a mom and that's the Peds Doc Talk podcast. So Peds Doc Talk, same spelling as the Instagram, all one word. And then that's available wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Awesome. I love it so much. And, you know, I can see why you're a fan favorite. We really got into it today. I'm so excited. So it'll make lots of viewers, really viewers and listeners, I guess, Instagram and podcasters, really happy that we've made this partnership happen. And I appreciate you taking the time. Yes. And I'm hopefully hoping one day that you can come on mine. And this is great. We have we can talk about so many things that bridge, you know, child health and maternal wellness. So I appreciate all that you do too. Thank you so much, Erica. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description. Or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job. Settling is not an option for me. Everything I desire is already mine. What if you can have it all? Because every day is for the girls. Hello, hello. Welcome to For the Girls podcast, hosted by Victoria Alario, For the Girls Who Want More. Listening to For the Girls will have you ready to raise the bar, stop settling for the bare minimum, and start believing you can have it all and step into the 2.0 version of you. You can catch a new episode of For the Girls every Monday across all podcast platforms. Until next time, girls.